Episode 4, Mickey's Magical Marble Machine. Hello, thanks for joining me for Wages of Zen Episode 4. As you may have noticed, I like to change up my welcome spiel each week, exploring salutations from around the globe. The sound you just heard was a traditional Maori greeting, which in hindsight was a terrible choice. If you weren't here last week, I invoke a curse on your firstborn son, meaning he'll never rise above the rank of midshipman in Her Majesty's Royal Navy. God, I really need to work on my cursing game. If you were here last week, well done and thank you. In the last episode, we discovered what the internet thinks meditation is. I read you Zen Master Dogen's Rules for Zazen, and I introduced a fun Zen game inspired by Kevin Bacon Roshi. I realised the moment the podcast was published that I'd left my imaginary listener and protégé, Barry, sat in excruciating pain. Having taken a deep inhalation and then exhaled fully as requested, Barry, like a loyal but oh-so-stupid Labrador, was apparently awaiting my command to breathe in again. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but after a full week of not breathing, Barry is dead. However, a bonus of his imaginary status is that he can easily be brought back to life. So welcome back, Barry, you absolute moron. In order to remedy Barry's breathing issues, this week we're going to look at some things that we probably should have looked at last week. Starting by illustrating the primary breath techniques of Zazen, before moving on to the grist of this episode, which happens to be a monkey-based meditation analogy that you will not want to miss. But first, let's look at breathing in the context of meditation. For this, I'll paraphrase the excellent instructions offered on the website for ZMM, the Zen Mountain Monastery, a residential Zen training and retreat centre found in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York. After outlining the physical postures for Zazen, ZMM suggests that in Zazen, we should breathe in a relaxed manner, not controlling or manipulating the breath, that is, breathing in the way that feels most effortless. They go on to add, that in Zazen, we direct our attention to the breath. Breath is a vital force and is intimately related to your awareness. When you're nervous, you may find yourself breathing quickly and shallowly. When your mind is relaxed, the breath is deep, easy and effortless. Place your attention within the physical sensation of your breath as it flows in and out, simply noticing how your belly gently rises and falls as you inhale and exhale naturally. As if this wasn't quite enough to be getting on with, they recommend practicing counting your breaths to help stabilize your attention. Counting each in inhalation and exhalation, beginning with one and counting up to 10. Inhale at the end of the inhalation, count one. Exhale at the end of the exhalation, count two. Continue until you get to 10 and then come back to one and start again. All the while, let your attention be with your breath as best you can, using the counting to help you stay aware. When your mind begins to wander, a thought arises and your attention gets lost in it, then clearly see or notice the thought, then let it go and begin the count again at one. In other words, when your attention wanders away from the breath into a thought, memory or whatever, notice this and redirect your attention back to the breath. This helps you notice that your mind has drifted away. Each time you return to the breath, you're developing an important aspect of your awareness. 
Now, as far as instructions go, that's really it, I promise. Literally, sit down, shut up, pay attention. Of course, as your practice matures and your ability to focus on the sensations of breath improves, then the suggestion is made that you move on to only counting at the end of an exhalation, for example. And eventually, somewhat later on, you might explore a practice called shikantaza, or just sitting. It's a difficult practice to define. Uh, it's one that doesn't rely on counting. It's simply sitting and being aware of everything that arises in your consciousness. I think that's a pretty bad explanation, but it's the best that I can do at the moment. What I would say is not to get caught up in imagining your Zazen practice as a journey. As in, you're a beginner now, but one day you'll be a Zen master. As tempting as that is, this is a practice designed to drive you into the very centre of this moment. The only moment we ever have. So, naturally, the concept of your future as a Zen master, however true it may end up, is just that, a concept, and therefore palpably absurd in this context. Please don't get too confused or disheartened at this. Meditation is a unique practice in this sense. It's unique, but not difficult. You only need to turn up. One way of looking at it is that in Zazen, we're all beginners forever. In ZMM's instructions earlier, I mentioned the wandering of attention from your breath, for example, to a thought, memory, daydream, etc., and the subsequent returning of attention to your breathing again. This experience is writ large on page one of the meditation practice manual. I hope you're listening, Barry. Much of your time in Zazen will be spent returning your attention to your breath over and over and over again, as you have drifted away, wondering what's for dinner, what's love got to do with it, and what's the point in doing this. As stated previously, this recollection of attention, although initially annoying, is an extremely important part of the process. Every time your mind wanders, and it always will, this gentle repetition of acknowledging and then guiding your attention back to the breath is the core practice of mindfulness. If you've never tried meditation before, you may not be aware that it is possible just to witness the activity of your mind. It might be an idea that sounds strange, unlikely or even frightening. Don't worry, it'll all become clear as I present to you a primate predicated analogy to help you understand. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to meet Mickey. But before we do, I'd like to do a shout out to a good friend of mine, uh, a Mr. Gilesh, who has uh, not only supported and encouraged me to do these recordings, but also given me the idea for this episode. So, so thank you, sir. We often send each other links and YouTube clips to channels that we find interesting. And earlier on in the week, he sent me a clip labeled Wintergarten Music Machine. I'll include the link in the episode notes. This video opens with the image of a bizarre shape in silhouette. And as the lights gradually come on, we see a large, mostly wooden machine with barrels and cogs and levers and gears and belts and marbles. 2,000 of them, apparently. A man appears and begins to power up the machine via a rotating handle, turning slowly at first and then reaching a steady tempo. As he does this, the camera cuts to interior shots of the machine and we see the marbles nudged along, obediently sitting in indents and filing along channels, being carried upwards to a reservoir on top of the machine. After 30 seconds or so, the operator flicks a handle next to his head and 
well, I'll, I'll let you watch the video. Suffice to say that this man and his magnificent marble machine make music. Now the music might not be to your taste, but I can almost guarantee you that you'll find the video mesmerizing. I admit that I did, and I'm aware that I'm often less than enthusiastic about screen time. First of all, I thought, what incredible creatures we are. Someone, possibly the operator, imagined, designed and created this incredible machine that looks like nothing I'd ever seen before, and purely for the purpose of art, and maybe making a few quid at the Christmas markets. Our ability as a species to abstract concepts, to harness our thoughts and to make real our creativity, is genuinely astonishing, and after another watch or two, I began to see a connection between this contraption and the activity of our minds. And this, my friends, is where Mickey comes in. So my analogy also contains a machine. It also runs on marbles and elbow grease. Yet there are three significant differences. The machine doesn't make music. It makes mental events, thoughts, ideas and the rest. It's got a large horn on it, like one from an old gramophone. And perhaps most importantly, it's operated by Mickey, a monkey. And so uh, Mickey the monkey sits on a stool and operates the handle of our thought machine, regularly flinging in a handful of fresh marbles here and there. Mickey is a Japanese macaque. He's 57 centimetres tall and weighs in at a fraction over 25 pounds. Mickey likes the cold, sweet potatoes and spa weekends, but not so keen on Little Mix, the dark and people who meditate. Now, maybe you can see where I'm headed here. Of course, no one actually has a Mickey in their heads furiously spinning a wheel and watching the thoughts flying out. But with a little tweaking, the analogy of Mickey and his magical marble machine might be helpful in understanding our minds. If we take Mickey and his machine to represent our mind, the contents of our conscious experience, then we can imagine that this fuzzy little red face fella is the energy that our body provides to fuel our brain. You can say what you like about Mickey, but he's a grafter. Mickey never stops turning the wheel. Even when we're in a deep, dreamless sleep, he's slowly rotating the wheel, one eye open and sliding off his stool. In our waking hours, the ferocity of Mickey's effort constantly varies and in turn produces more or less mental activity. This image of Mickey frantically double-handing his crank as the thoughts spill out unchecked is essentially what's happening in everyone's brains most of the time. He only stops when we do. And if you're dead, and I have this on good authority, you don't need to meditate. Thanks for that, Barry. Well, so what, you might say? Why is, why is this a problem? Well, it's not a problem in and of itself. The ebb and flow of our mental activity is completely normal. But it becomes problematic when we confuse the results of Mickey's activity with reality and end up identifying with and clinging on to these thoughts, ideas, etc. Buddhism suggests that this activity is the root of all our suffering and goes on to tell us that the practice of meditation is the path to liberating ourselves from this cycle of anxiety and misery. Because Mickey, although well respected in the macaque community, cares little for the quality of what comes out of his machine. In fact, the majority of his marbly mayhem unleashes what can only be described as all-out codswallop. And once one is enchanted by the dreck dribbling out of this unimaginably complex mechanism, 
it takes a considerable amount of effort to believe that one could ever be free of his shenanigans. Unfortunately, many of us are unaware that there is a method we can use to simply observe Mickey and his cacophonous thought horn without getting involved, and this method is called meditation. So my suggestion is to sit down and concentrate on your breath. Simply try to see Mickey in action, and every time he interrupts, and there will be frequent interruptions, gently bring yourself back to the breath. You'll notice how frustrating this is, and how little you can actually pay attention without finding yourself spellbound by his vivacious teeth-clacking and pelvis-thrusting dance. Mickey's a right character, but he's potentially harmless, and he's here all of your life, so you might as well try the veal. Speaking of trying veal, I have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash wages of zen, where, if you like, you could digitally divest yourself of some dubiously illegal cryptocurrency, and that will in turn enable me to take over the world one potty at a time. At the end of last week, I sent out an electronic memo to all my subscribers, asking for questions for my new hashtag Ask Wages Zen Agony Uncle section. And you can't imagine how happy I was to receive a message from my favourite fictitious friend and student. That's right, Barry Giblets from Eastbourne. Barry writes, Hello Wages. Love the show. Long time listener, first time caller. My girlfriend and I, on a weekend, we like to go to a local beaver sanctuary. But recently it's been closed for refurbishment. Last weekend, this meant we were forced to travel further than we'd like to, to attend the New Haven Refuge for Indecently Injured Owls. Although inexpensive to enter this attraction, there is only so much time you can seriously spend looking at a barn owl with a ruptured ball bag. So I would like to ask Wages whether he has any recommendations for any other attractions nearby, bearing in mind we've already visited the Museum of Porridge Oats and Alfriston's World of Windows. Right, Barry, sorry, when I ask for questions, I, I meant questions about meditation or, or Zen Buddhism, not whether I know any decent tourist hotspots, you total cretin. <sighs> Having said that, I did recently pay a visit to the Eddie Van Halen Institute for Bipolar Guinea Pigs, which I must say was excellently run, had a wonderful cafe and the carrot cake was to die for. <sighs> well, on that bombshell, I guess I'll see you all next week. No, no, still bad.